And remember very clearly going going across to New York, being in NASDAQ, the ringing of the bell, and feeling like I was at my own funeral. It was a really, really strange experience. My mum has a very proud picture of my face on Times Square. <laughs> and I look nice. at that and it feels odd. On today's show, we're tackling a subject that's got plenty of stigma around it, mental health, and we're being joined by Amber Costa, who's the founder of Balpro. My name's David Savage. I'm your host for Tech Talks, the twice-weekly technology podcast discussing news and ideas from leaders across our industry. Enjoy the show. Joining me today, Ali. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Dave? Yeah, this is becoming regular. I know. Uh, sorry. Oh, you sorry. don't look very happy about that. <laughs> Missing my second half today, though. Mm, Evie is not around. She's ill. Must have been the flight. Uh, yes, still recovering. Delayed reaction. Delayed trauma. Um, also, want to mention, well done, Jack Pierce. Oh? Yes. Uh, Jack, as you know, listeners will be fairly familiar with Jack, yes. uh, moved into his first home yesterday. Oh, yes, I saw that. I, yes. I was wondering what the key was on Instagram. Now well, I What know. else would the key be? <laughs> People don't normally take keys for... Well, when you turn 21, you get a key. It could have been the key to life. Yeah. Oh, is that not a tradition? No. Oh, in South Africa, when you turn 21, you get a, a little key to How your interesting. Life. Yeah. Well, Why 21? Why not? Food for thought. Um, because we follow America, and America's legal age of starting to drink is 21. <laughs> Poor you. Um, but we, we can drink it. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. We can drink at 18. Just want to put that out there. So this week was International Men's Day. I do know that. Earlier in the week. I um, do know that. Now, one thing that I think we should highlight is the biggest killer of men under the age of 50 in the UK is suicide. Really? Yeah. It's a massive problem. Masculinity has still not adapted to allowing people to share and speak about feelings. And today's podcast is not about masculinity and men, but it is about mental health. Yeah. Uh, so I thought it was a good episode to release today, given that it was International Men's Day earlier in the week, and that definitely mental health is a is a massive challenge for men across the the whole of the country. Definitely, definitely. So with that, I'll hand over to the interview with Amber, and afterwards myself and Ali will have some thoughts. So on today's show, I'm talking to Amber Costa, the founder of Balpro. That's How right. are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for inviting me into this lovely space as well, the wing in, in Oxford Circus, or near Oxford Circus, rather. Yes, my new home. You've never been around so many women, have you? <laughs> uh, well, well, it's a very nice women space. In, women in tech last week. Women course. in tech last week, yes. Yeah. I found it odd when I first joined. My background, since the age of 14, I've been working in male-dominated industries, from barbershops mm. to recruitment companies yep. in the engineering sector to tech which is obviously my most the sector that I've spent the most time in yeah so for me it's been much more normal walking into a group of a room full of men yeah not necessarily comfortable but you pretend that it is as a woman I pretend that I don't notice that so when I first joined here and was surrounded by women I also found it odd but actually it's oh, it's really nice <laughs> it's really nice but that's probably quite a good segue into kind of talking about you first of all and, and some context setting because you have held some very senior roles uh, kind of VP level or maybe not quite VP level but but just below that that suite no, of C-suite absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely do you want to just describe what you were doing before Balbro yes yes so my most 
My most relevant and my most recent history was I joined a company called AppDynamics, a software company in 2013. When I joined AppD, um, or in fact, when I was looking at joining AppDynamics, I went onto the website. It was a cheeky startup that was worth $100 million, um, valued at $100 million, San Francisco-based. The website was... um, The website explained that they made technology that in my mind made the internet work better, made websites perform better. So for the technologists of yours that are listening to this podcast, it's application performance management. But for somebody who isn't a techie, I was like, oh, it makes the internet work better. People use the internet and that's kind of a big deal. So (laughs) the product should sell. So I accepted a role within AppDynamics in a marketing position very quickly was promoted into um, a senior position within the organization to build, I was given the responsibility to build out the EMEA marketing function. Did that for three and a half years, effectively as regional CMO. Yeah, sorry, I should, to get this right, you you were regional CMO and then you became the VP Strategy Strategy and Operations. the VP was a higher level than the regional CMO. Exactly, exactly. So so I was marketing focused at first and then I came to a crossroads, looked at, shall I move to San Francisco and join the corporate team Mm -hmm. in marketing and continue there? Or do I want to actually make a bit of a career pivot and focus on the business holistically in partnering with our general manager of Mia in helping helping fix problems, helping the organization work mm. with a lot of different subjects and topics. So the official title was Vice President of Strategy and Operations. Mm. My main focus was the EMEA region. However, I also got involved in product projects that were global, where um, so projects such as IPO readiness as a tech company, tech startup going through hyper growth. Yeah. Obviously, our fa- main focus for the bulk of the time was on IPO. Um, so doing IPO readiness work from sales point of view, doing global management training and leadership development training. And how many years were you in that role? All in all, so my... Oh, sorry, in the company. My tenure at AppDynamics was six and a half years. Right. And in the latter stages of that, the last six months or so, maybe a bit longer, Yes. you unfortunately went through a mental breakdown. No. No? No, not the timing. So, yes, it happened, but the timing was off. Right, okay. So, um... So I mentioned I mentioned that we were gearing up to IPO. What actually happened was we got acquired. So mm-hmm. two days before we were due to list on NASDAQ, Cisco swooped in and bought us for a record-breaking $3.7 billion. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Incredible, financially. What happened after that, that was 2017, early 2017. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to attend the um, NASDAQ ringing of the bell. We had one, obviously not to signify the APD ticker symbol, but one to mark the acquisition. And remember very clearly going going across to New York, being in NASDAQ, the ringing of the bell, and feeling like I was at my own funeral. It was a really, really strange experience. My mum has a very proud picture of my face on Times Square (laughs) and I look at that and it feels odd 
Do you recognise yourself? Yes, I feel so sorry for that girl. Right. <laughs> yeah, I do recognise myself. I was. I recognised that at that point in time, I was really unwell and I didn't realise it. And what happened over the next six months is I found myself saying to people, I'm sick and tired and I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And by that, I mean, I felt sick as in nauseous and exhausted all of the time. Mm. I felt broken, but I pressed on. I worked harder, I worked more. I ran in and helped lead the Cisco APD integration until one day my brain refused to work anymore. Did you recognize what was happening? I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and possibly we'll come onto this later, but the software that we sold, as I said, it made websites, made applications, mobile apps, systems work better. We were selling a product that was focused on flawless performance, always on. And it's almost like subliminally, that message that we were selling about our software had become a message that I was selling to myself and culturally within the organization. Mm. So I knew that I, that there was something wrong, but it was almost unacceptable. I felt like I should be a robot (laughs) and it took me what then happened. You know, it took me a mental breakdown where I got to the point where I couldn't speak properly, I couldn't think, I couldn't walk for longer than 10 minutes without having to sit on a garden wall and felt like an 87 year old. And I had really bad abdominal pains, but a whole host of physical symptoms. I didn't understand what any of them were. And it wasn't until all of this happened and I went to see a number of doctors, had a number of at first very physical tests that I realized oh hold on I'm human I am not this robot that we're trying to sell I'm not a bit of software so I think let's pivot slightly then to talk about launching Balpro because I think I think anyone if anyone's interested and we we will come back to it I don't don't want to skip over it but you've written a very candid and quite humorous blog about this on LinkedIn that would be quite good for people to read but you launched Balpro to help companies drive growth, but not at the cost of their people exactly. because of the experience that you went through. Exactly. So once I returned to App Dynamics, because it was important for me to return to Apti after my experience. So I had six months off and then returned to App Dynamics yeah. and noticed that actually there were a lot of things that could have been put in place to help me getting into the position that I got to. So as something that app dynamics my journey there is so so important to me i wanted to leave a bigger bit of a legacy to look after the people there feel good about my exit and then see what i could do in the future to make a difference so i returned did a number of initiatives there learned some more about that and now that's tied into me building valpro so mental health obviously we're talking a lot about mental health as the primary focus here but mental health isn't the core component It's not the only component, I should say, that organizations need to look at. Every organization is, of course, different. For for organizations that are primarily sales-led and have aggressive revenue goals, Mm. the way that 
the culture is is very much uh, I've referred to it a, a little bit in the past as almost like a corporate tour of duty where you have this project or this milestone whether it's a quarterly revenue goal or if it's an, an exit plan an acquisition an IPO something like that and you push and push and push the team to go and work towards that and then what happens is the members of staff end up making a number of different sacrifices whether that's their health like I did their relationships um, I've worked with people and spoken to people who have been afraid to admit that they're fathers because they've thought that acknowledging the fact that they have children would be disloyal mm -hmm. <laughs> to the organization because they should be laser focused on achieving this revenue goal so what often happens is you have this rah rah and this aggressive kind of sales culture that's pushing and pushing and pushing people towards a goal and then people burn out do you think that mission and because i've asked this to a few people actually to be fair but do you think mission and culture have become bywords for something a little bit more sinister that that people get driven towards you must buy into this goal this is what we're doing and you're part of the team yeah I think that it can be I think that it and it and I put my hands up I was a part of that mm. you know I was somebody who would drive people towards working really fucking hard and making certain sacrifices in order to be able to achieve success that was very one-dimensional and I think in a number of situations it's although the outcome may be quite sinister I don't think that's the intention I think a no. lot of people really believe that that's very important but some people you have some people like me who I'll push myself I don't really need you to push me I need you to pull me back <laughs> and I think that a lot of people who attract it who are attracted to organizations that have got very very fierce and aggressive missions sometimes sometimes they need to be pulled back and there needs to be a little bit more of an element of kindness and mm. safety and security and nourishment there needs to be balance Balpro stands, stands for the balance project I think that balance is very important. And you talk here about the fact, sorry, just some notes that we, we kind of shared before mm. we hit record. You know, somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that we're humans and this comes at a human and a business cost. Yes. Do people understand that? You know, look, you, you are hurting your, your bottom line effectively if you're a business by not treating your people as people. I think, yeah, some people do. But it doesn't necessarily translate <laughs> into actions? Or? I, yeah, I agree. And I think that's a part of it. I think that going back to, to Abdi, because it's a very useful reference point for this, mm. we used to look at our recruitment process, for instance, as a bad hire for us would cost us $5 million. And we had a whole formula for working that out in terms of the quota the time to hire like time to recruit productivity agency costs all of those different things what organizations i don't think have fully woken up to is that treating your employees in a certain way or not running the business in a certain way does end up having that cost 
and then the employee turnover goes up. That's interesting. I mean, you know, there's glass doors really opened up the conversation about yeah. culture. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot more aware, awareness. And a lot of companies now will talk about culture and values and they're very out there with it, but do that many companies actually actually put into practice what they're, what they're preaching? At a corporate level, maybe. So if you look at an, a really, really large organization, you've got the branding team and, mm. and maybe there are some diehard fans that do, but it definitely doesn't trickle through the ranks. And I think that in every organization, you develop micro cultures. Yeah. And if... And in every organization, if you send, and I've done this, actually, I've done this with some of my clients, if you send a questionnaire out that says, A, do you believe in your values? Or B, do you know what your values are or what the corporate values are? Nobody really does and they don't give a shit. So I suppose this is the key point. How do you go from a place where this is being talked about to actually being... Uh, enacted throughout the organisation in a way that does help treat people like people and doesn't push them to the point where they begin to unravel. I tried for a while to champion a message of foot soldiers can be the ones that force change mm. because it was really aspirational. <laughs> I really wanted to be like, power to the people. <laughs> um, and yeah, they can to a certain extent, but one of the most important things or the most important thing is that decision needs to be made and agreed at a board's level. Unless, you know, if there is a board or at least the C-suites those people need to be bought in and depending on the organization there are going to be a number of different things that need to be focused on yes maybe it's an approach to mental health but it also could be an approach to diversity it could be leadership and management training it could be the way that you communicate it could be redefining values the work that i'm doing with organizations is going in and appreciating that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to every company. Every company is different. One of the biggest things that I'm hearing is, in fact, let me ask you this question. I'm really interested to see what happens here. Is what do you think of first when I say work-life balance? <sighs> to me, it's the ability to work when, when and where I want to. Yes, okay. That ties into it, certainly. One of the things that normally comes back to me is hours. Right. It's like, oh, so, you know, Balpro must all be about the fact that you want to shorten working hours or you want to enforce email bans over the weekend and stuff no, like that. No, I find that. that I actually work in maybe even longer hours at non-traditional working times. Yes, yeah, and I think that that's... I think I champion that. <laughs> and I don't necessarily... For me, it's not about long hours or short hours. Yeah. It's about rewarding hours. So rewarding hours is a key part where people actually enjoy the work they're doing. Yeah. And as you said, that flexibility to be able to do it when it's right for you. So There is that thing that I don't mind logging on at seven o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the evening or doing work at weekends if at four o'clock in the afternoon I fancy going for a run, I can. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's really important. I think that... There's a lot of research that goes into our circadian rhythms, for instance, mm. where some people really enjoy being, you know, logging on first thing. Some people are the owls and they like yeah. in the evening. I mean, I'm rubbish in the afternoon. Organisations really need to understand, and this comes down to the cost element, um, that not everybody works 
in the same way. The obviously the nine to five doesn't exist anymore. But even if it did, that doesn't flatter everybody's approach and style. Yeah. And they will get more from you if they say to you, take two hours off in the afternoon and go and do whatever you like. You know, go and run or go and binge watch some telly or whatever. Yeah. And then come back if you fancy it. The quality of your work will be better. You'll be more productive and you'll be happy. One thing I want to finish on very quickly then, uh, and it's coming back to that point, I suppose, about the NASDAQ photo. Mm. Um, no matter what an organisation does, there will mm. probably be instances where there are people, due to any number of different circumstances outside an organisation's mm. control, who, who are struggling. Yes. And outwardly, you might not know it. Yes. So how can an organisation be more sympathetic to that and, and help people who might be hiding that they are going through some kind of internal trauma. Yeah, they might be hiding it or they might not know it. There was a long time when it took me a long time to know that I was unwell. And then once I was told that I had a mental health problem, which I Mm. did, it took me a minute to accept that. But back to your question, organizations need to have a support system in place for their employees. And the first the absolute first part of that is getting educated and that's at all levels from educating your employees to understand what some of the key points are the key kind of symptoms to look out for which is useful for them in getting to know themselves and it's also for them caretaking their family or their friends as well as their co-workers but especially important at a first line manager level Mm. so i've actually a great resource to point to is i've done a another blog on linkedin called how mental is mental health Mm. or how mental is mental uh, a mental health problems or is mental illness we're making strides with squashing some of the stigma especially if you look in the right places around mental illness but a lot of the time people hear a mental health problem or they hear depression and they picture somebody in the corner of a room rocking and crying. That's not what it looks like. And going and understanding that and then understanding that you know what to look for. That doesn't mean that you can diagnose somebody, by the way, with a mental health problem because you're not a psychiatrist. <laughs> Less power to the people in that respect. But then being able to actually have a, an open conversation without judgment where they're just listening people need to say how are you doing are you okay ask again and then listen look it's been fascinating to talk to you i really appreciate you giving up some time pleasure for quite a heavy subject on on quite a bright sunny kind of winter's day (laughs) it's um it's funny actually i talk about this stuff so often yeah that sometimes i have to remind myself how painful it is yeah yeah um, uh, but yeah it's a pleasure to talk about it it's important thank you for giving up some time thank you how sad is it that that picture of her at Times Square that should be something that most people would kind of look to as a real high point in life has such unhappy memories for her her person oh, I, when, when she said when she said she thought it was it, it reminded her she thought she was at her own funeral mm. it broke my heart 
Um, I could just imagine the feelings rushing through her head. Imagine everyone around you being so happy and you just feel empty. Mm. Absolutely terrible. But the, I suppose the real interesting point about this, and uh, it's a wonderful kind of example for the lack of understanding, understanding about mental health as a whole, her mm. mother has that picture. Her mother has that picture as something that she keeps that she's proud of. Exactly. So you obviously cannot see that Amber is struggling in that picture. And I think, I mean, you're pointing out the mom has the picture. I mean, we don't know, I don't know anything about Amber's mom, but people that have not suffered with it themselves, um, I don't think they really understand the seriousness of it and what it, what it does to you. Um, a, a couple of these conversations have been going around, not just the office, but um, people take, let's say, for example, depression. Mm. Um, a lot of people think depression is just a made-up thing. It's all in your head, excuse the pun, but... People don't take it seriously. And I think moving into the corporate world, especially in an area like London, where you're supposed to be this hard, um, hard person walking in strong-minded, tough skin, I mean, it gets to you that so many people suffer from it and I don't think it's taken seriously enough. No, I think you're right. I, I think there is that thing that because you can't physically see anything wrong with that person, you know. You see a broken arm, you can tell that someone has a broken arm. Exactly. And the other thing is, if you have a broken arm, you, you can feel and see the symptoms yourself. I think Amber, she makes that point that um, there's no guarantee that you will even notice that you're unwell. There's something wrong, yeah. And I mean, you, you'll go through, you'll go probably go through your life, wake up every day and think, well, this is just how life is. Mm. You don't know. I mean, it'll completely. Let's just bring it back to work. She said it's. It just took it out of her. So, every day, that's her whole life. It was work and work and work, um, and eventually, it just gets to the point where you don't know any better. You don't think there's anything wrong. You think this is what happy looks like. Yeah. Um. So so now her going through this transformation, coming into this work-life balance. Um, and wanting to kind of spread the word, what she's doing now, I, I honestly admire her so much. Well, yeah, I mean, how fantastic that she's confronting it head on mm. and being open enough to talk about the problems that she's had uh, and not being afraid of that, kind of way, owning that vulnerability, I suppose. Mm. Um, but some great, some great takeaways for business in there too, though, because this idea that, um, you know, we, we should work rewarding hours it is ridiculous, isn't it? Why should we be constrained to a particular set of hours that actually are quite arbitrary and don't necessarily make a lot of sense? I am useless between the hours of one and four most days. I just am not productive. After lunch, tip full tummy. That's, That's exactly. right. I'm just not very good. I don't eat, even if I don't eat a huge amount, I get a bit tired. I get a bit grouchy. And then I come alive again later on in the day and can do more. But I'm very productive at like seven o'clock in the morning. Exactly. Or eight o'clock at night. <laughs> Depends. Yeah. So why why are we forced to work nine to five when actually it doesn't make a lot of sense and it's not doing businesses any good? No, well, it, you, because you're kind of almost putting your employees in a little jail, aren't you? Oh, it, taking it from a different perspective, not just when you personally are productive. If someone has, if if someone is happy in their in their job, their position, um, if they have something to do, something to complete, if it means you stay five minutes extra, half an hour extra, you'll do it. Because you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm clock watching. I finished six, now I need to leave. Yeah, but I don't feel like I'm clock watching, but I'm still useless at various hours of the day. Mm. And I think that's just biology and that's just individuality. And that's you need just- to take a nap. 
this kind of goes back to yeah but this kind of goes back to mental health and an awareness that we're not all built the same Definitely. and that if you want to get the best out of people you should you know if you're in a job where actually you can be measured on output measure on output Definitely. I know it's not possible in all walks of life mm. uh, maybe you're having to deal with customers and whatever else but okay. if that's not the case why the hell should you have certain rigid hours that don't necessarily make any sense Looking at it from me, from from what we do, right? Um, when we get hold of our clients or our candidates, uh, it's it's usually after after working hours, during mm. lunch, before working hours. Why? Because everyone else is working. Um, so I guess that's kind of how you you measure our productivity. We have KPIs, um, but I I agree with you in the sense that just like you manage different people differently, people's body bodies work differently mm. like you say you have those four hours where you just completely useless <laughs> um, i didn't say useless <laughs> i don't think maybe i did um look it's it's a super interesting subject that amber's touched on and i wish we could talk and talk and talk about it because you really could but unfortunately the format of the show doesn't allow that no only 30 minutes yeah uh, uh well maybe a little bit longer but around that uh but there are loads loads of interesting articles that she's written i'll share some of those in the show notes have a read of those and um i know you've connected to her on linkedin I amber have. someone is sliding into your dms yep and uh yeah we'll be back after this short message once a month, Tech Talks opens The Tuck Shop, a YouTube tech news roundup, which is kindly carried by Disruptive Live. Disruptive Live is the UK's first and only 24-7 TV channel for the technology industry. Stay up to date with all the latest industry news by following our regular talk shows broadcast live across the Disruptive Live website and social media channels. You can also catch Disruptive Live at some of the largest global technology events, broadcasting from London, Manchester, Singapore, Dubai, and many more. Right, two bits of tech news. One you don't have to comment on. One is just an announcement, and the second one you have to comment on. Okay. First one, I wanted to give a shout out to Okra, who were on the show earlier in the year, because they are partnering with Viva Technology. So they're addressing the demand for actionable insights to empower life sciences. A little bit of a press release. I'm going to include it in the show notes. Shout out to Okra, friends of the show. Have a read of that press release. Really interesting development between Okra and Viva. That's in the show notes. However, onto our technology news for the day. Google issues harsh new restrictions on political ad targeting. Propaganda. There we go. No, not propaganda. <laughs> Google announced that it would start limiting the abilities of political advertisers to target their messaging in the coming months. In a blog post, their vice president of product um, uh, management and advertising, Scott Spencer, said that the company would begin to ban political advertisers from targeting consumers based on their political affiliation or public voter records. Advertisers will still be able to target voters based on age, gender and zip code, but no more specific location targeting will be permitted. Contextual advertising, like servicing ads to people reading or watching a story, say, about the economy, will also uh, be permitted. I think this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Because we only had that instance two days. I mean, this is talking primarily there of zip codes about the states. Obviously, we know yeah, the presidential yeah, yeah. election is coming up there. Uh, but it was only a couple of days ago that the Conservatives um, pretended to be a fact-checking service on Twitter uh, during the debates. Changed their logo, changed their name, put out a whole load of fake information whilst pretending to be a fact-checking service. And then after the debate, changed it back. Um, if you don't restrict the ability of people to target 
you don't know what you're what they're being targeted with. They could be being targeted with with lies. Uh, so I thought this was really interesting that Google have come out and said this because, to be perfectly honest, I think that Google, sorry, I think that Twitter have been weak in their response to the Conservatives. Okay, I let, let me get this straight. So has Google Google taken um, the, the politicians and parties, and they they're kind of it's that type of they are limiting they Fine. are limiting the Fine. the ability of people to target. I I think wow, good on you, Google. I think oh, I don't even know what to say to that. I think good on you. I'm just a little bit shocked about the news you told me that. Did you not hear about this? It was no, been all over the news. No, so during the debates, they changed their Twitter account logo and name to fact checks or fact checker but obviously there's still the same handle so it's still cchq which is conservative headquarters um that's a little bit and then slide, after isn't it? The, yeah but we're like putting out all this face fake information pretending to be a fact checker basically tearing apart corbyn's arguments uh but falsely and then after the debate changed it back which that's, is just surely that's illegal is that not illegal? Well, this is an interesting fraud? area. There's so little regulation around this. But yeah, I mean, you could say it's an element of fraud. But, the, but Twitter basically went, ooh, naughty, don't do that again. Uh, it's like, oh, come on. Someone is going to shout at Twitter for that. I'm but the problem, sure. problem is people won't know that it's that's happened necessarily. They might just see a tweet and go, oh, well, look, it's just X, Y, and Z again. Uh, and it'll influence someone's ability and, and undermine democracy. Anyway, that's an interesting thought for the weekend. Good on Google for limiting the ability to target. Good on uh, Google. If you've not seen The Great Hack on Netflix, interesting stuff around this. Go watch that, Ali. Go have a look. The I'll Great Hack on look. Netflix. I'm writing it down right now. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Political technology education going on here. Um, I've started I've started reading up on the uh, UK politics because, obviously, South Africa, huge politics problems there all the time and political problems there all the time. So I came to the UK Looks like you guys have just as many problems. We got some problems. Yeah. Do you get a vote? Um, in South Africa, yeah. Do you get to vote in the UK? No, 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 no. I, I, so I'm European citizen. Sorry, um, anyone that supports Brexit. But no, I don't think I get a vote. But if I did have a chance to vote, am I allowed to say who I'd vote for? No, I'm not going to say that out loud. I don't think as much Brexit supporters probably wouldn't have a problem with you, but never mind. <laughs> oh, gosh. I probably shouldn't say that, no. Out loud. Well, cut anyway. that. Cut it. No. Anyway, uh, have a lovely weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.